Hello everyone and welcome to this new session of MEM podcast. I'm joined here today by Dr. Melanie Blake, one of our stroke consultants here in Northampton General Hospital, and we're going to speak about stroke medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. Blake, for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me to chat with you today about stroke medicine. I think we're going to try and do two podcasts. The first one's going to focus on making a stroke diagnosis and the various scales and imaging we may use. And then the second time, we'll have a look more about management of thrombolysis, thrombectomy, and other things like malignant MCA. So I like to keep things quite simple. And I think we'll start at the beginning and nothing beats taking a good history and an awareness of the questions you need to ask to get the information you need to make an accurate differential diagnosis. And I think it's important to spend some time, if you can, asking the right questions. Things I find helpful are things like, what were you doing when it happened? Patients often describe a heaviness or numbness in a limb, and you're not quite sure if that's sensory loss or weakness. So ask them if they could lift their arm or lift their leg. And one other important question I think is, asking if they feel 100% back to normal. They might say the arm's working properly, but if you ask them if it's completely back to normal, they may say not. Stroke's common, and there's probably about 100,000 a year in the UK, and about 38,000 deaths. It's the fourth biggest killer. So there's about 1.2 million people living with stroke in our country. In my hospital, we probably see about 900 every year. So how do you make a stroke diagnosis? Well, I think it's really important to realise and recognise that it's a vascular illness. So the onset is sudden and out of the blue. The symptoms are maximal at onset and they involve a focal neurological deficit, the loss of a neurological function. I know this, the books say that TIAs tend to resolve within 24 hours, but I think if you talk to most practicing stroke consultants, they would agree that TIAs tend to resolve within 10 to 20 minutes. And the classical definition is a little bit old hat now. But you get complete recovery after TIA. If you've still got symptoms, then it's not a TIA and it's more likely a stroke. I often get asked when we're talking about thrombolysis, well, what happens if you thrombolyze a TIA? And I think my way of thinking about that is the process of evaluation for thrombolysis takes probably about 20 to 30 minutes. And if your patient's still got the symptoms, then it's likely you're looking at a stroke. And if you've made the right decision to thrombolyze, you should go ahead and do that. Even if an individual recovers quite rapidly whilst you're assessing for thrombolysis, you may well still go along and thrombolyze. So remembering stroke and TIA, sudden onset, maximal onset, and a focal neurological negative symptom. We don't tend to use the ABCD2 score much anymore for risk stratification in TIA. If you look at the most recent Royal College of Physician guidelines, they advocate not using it and assessing TIAs and trying to see all TIAs within 24 hours of symptom onset. That does mean you're going to be seeing an awful lot of patients that don't have TIA, but then you're not going to miss any. I think what's important to also recognise is there are a lot of non-focal neurological symptoms that aren't TIA. And for any of you that have done TIA clinics, you'll all be used to seeing lots of referrals of people with lightheadedness, loss of consciousness, incontinence, confusion, that aren't really TIA symptoms. So TIA symptoms tend to be negative and a focal loss. Vertigo, tinnitus, slurred speech, double vision, loss of balance can all be TIA symptoms, but not seemingly just on their own, normally in a collection of other symptoms. If we go on now to think a little bit about stroke, 80% of strokes are ischemic, 15% are hemorrhagic, and I guess we need to count 5% of subarachnoid hemorrhage in there as well. 
NIH Stroke Scale is a well-recognised international validated score for looking at sort of scoring stroke. We all use it in our clinical practice, especially when we're examining acute strokes in the emergency room and thinking about thrombolysis. It's a 13-item scoring system. It provides a structured neurological examination and actually parts of it we tend to do very quickly early on in assessment and then perhaps fill in the rest of it as we're making decisions. It does look at all aspects of the neurological system, although it does tend to lack posterior circulation examination. It's got a maximum score of 42 and a minimum score of zero. Zero means no, somebody's got no symptoms of stroke and 42 means they've probably got the worst stroke ever. So it's validated to indicate stroke severity. An NIHSS of less than 12 suggests that perhaps 80% may have a good outcome. Those that are scoring greater than 20, less than 20% of those are going to have a good outcome. So that's a tool that we use a lot. You can get free training on that and there are a number of websites where you can train yourself freely to perform an NIHSS score. People use the MRC score to grade muscle power. Now, I don't tend to use the MRC score acutely in stroke to decision make, but it can be a useful tool to document recovery of affected limbs. I think it's important to recognise that this score was originally designed to assess motor weakness from injuries to single peripheral nerves and not to stroke. But we all get used to using it. It has been used differently in some circumstances with extra bits added in. So the classic MRC score is zero to five, zero meaning no contraction of a muscle group, one meaning a flicker or a trace, two active movement of the limb but with gravity eliminated, three active movement against gravity, four is active movement against gravity with resistance and five is normal power. So yes, you can use the MRC. I wouldn't use it in your acute assessment, but it's quite handy to document strength recovery going on. And actually, I find it useful to compare. So one day you can see what power is one day. And then if you're seeing a patient a few days down the line, you're able to see if there's been some change, either positively or negatively. Another scale that people get quite caught up in and worried about and muddled about is the Oxfordshire Community Stroke Project Classification also known as the Bamford Stroke Scale. This, if you look at it, should be based on clinical examination done at a mean of four days after a stroke, but we've all started to use this much more acutely. It might be why some patients initially classified as, say, a lax or a lackey seem to progress to a tax, and some patients with a pax improve to a lax, and it's not so much the stroke changing, it's more the timing at which you've done the assessment. I find the Oxford Community Stroke Project classification useful for a number of reasons. One is it can indicate the underlying vascular lesion. It gives you a feel for what type of stroke it is. Another, it can predict volume of infarct. And the other is it can give you some feeling of outcome quite early on, which can be useful when you're deciding how to look after a stroke patient. So we've all heard of tax, packs, lax and pox. And we put the I on to indicate an infarct and an H on to indicate a hemorrhage. So if you describe somebody with a tax, you're talking about a stroke that's been caused by a large vessel occlusion if it's ischemic and obviously a, a large bleed if it's a hemorrhage. If we're talking in the main about ischemic strokes, the attack stroke is going to be a large embolic stroke or a large atherosclerotic stroke and can carry a mortality of up to 60% and ongoing long-term dependency of around 35%. 
When we say total in a total anterior circulation stroke, we mean all major aspects of the supratentorial cerebral function have been affected, or a full house, not meaning that it's a total artery blockage. So the symptoms that you expect to see with attacks are a hemiplegia, plus or minus a sensory deficit, in at least two areas out of the face, arm and leg. And that hemiplegia will be contralateral to the stroke lesion. The individual will have a contralateral hemianopia and will also have a new disturbance of higher cerebral function. And by that, we mean something like aphasia or visuospatial disturbance. So you've got the full three, the weakness, plus or minus sensory deficit, a hemianopia and a deficit in higher cortical function. I think you need to be aware of the walking tax, and we've all seen them, the patients that seem to fit in all of those categories, but are actually up and walking. And that's because whilst we talk about attacks being a total anterior circulation stroke, occasionally it can happen with an occlusion of the posterior cerebral artery. And in that case, you can get a much milder hemiparesis, but with a marked aphasia and visual field loss. And I think that's possibly because the stroke's been in the small perforating arteries from the posterior cerebral artery, affecting the upper midbrain. If we move on to the partial anterior circulation strokes, again, we're talking about large-ish vessel occlusion, but not so extensive as in a total anterior circulation. Mortality is up at about 15% and dependency at 30%. So again, we're looking at higher cortical defects and motor and sensory defects. But it's a bit different to attack. So in, in this situation, classically, we're talking about having two out of three of the symptoms we see with attacks. So a motor or sensory loss of two out of three of face, arm and leg, plus a hemianopia, or a motor and or sensory loss plus higher cerebral dysfunction, such as dysphasia, or higher cerebral dysfunction and a hemianopia. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated because attacks can be just higher cortical dysfunction on its own, and rarely it can be an individual monoparesis. The way I think about this is when you're talking about a PAX, you're talking about probably a branch of the middle cerebral artery that affects the cortex and or the subcortical areas. So if you've just got the cortex affected, you may then get your monoparesis in a small part of the body, such as an arm or leg. If we move on to LAX, these are the type of strokes that people think of as perhaps as minor stroke, but actually they can be significantly debilitating. These tend to occur with the occlusion of a single deep perforating artery. And I guess when I first started using this classification, I used to think that lacks were all anterior circulation, but they don't have to be. They can be single deep perforating arteries affecting the internal capsule and the corona radiata, but also the pons. And I think it's important to realise that you can get anterior circulation type symptoms with infarcts in the pons. And I think lax can cause quite profound, or you can see quite profound motor deficits with lacuna strokes. And that's because although they're just small strokes, they're affecting areas of the brain where motor tracts are closely packed together. So everybody's heard about the lax, so you've got those pure motor strokes, and pure sensory strokes, and they need to affect either face and arm or arm and leg, the so-called brachiofacial or brachiocrural lacuna strokes. 
you don't get any aphasia, visual spatial disturbance or visual field defect or brainstem dysfunction with lacuna stroke. There are a couple of other types of lacuna strokes that you'll hear about. Those with pure hemisensory motor loss, so the combination of motor and sensory loss. And then there's those which are called ataxic hemiparesis. So that's with a weakness and ataxia on the same side. And my way of looking at that is a weak limb can often be ataxic without it being a cerebellar stroke. And then you can have a weakness of facial muscles, so a dysarthria and clumsy hand syndrome. So those are the two of our lacuna stroke type symptoms as well. If we move on to posterior circulation, mortality in this group of strokes is probably running about 20% and dependency about 20% as well. Now, these are the strokes that you're getting the brainstem symptoms with. So bilateral limb deficits, cortical blindness and horners can all be part of this. Brainstem posterior circulation strokes can also affect the thalamus and the occipital lobes. Important to recognise when you're thinking about posterior circulation strokes, there are probably two types of strokes, the cerebellar strokes and thalamic strokes. And these are because these two types of strokes can present as if they're not strokes. So cerebellar strokes can often present just with vomiting and a decreased level of consciousness. And you need to think about cerebellar stroke in your differential diagnosis of that. I've seen a few cases over the years, not so many now, but years ago when I was a much more junior consultant, when we didn't have patients so concentrated in our stroke units, of people coming in with vomiting and loss of consciousness and dying a couple of days later because of increased edema in the cerebellum, pressure on the fourth ventricle and obstructive hydrocephalus. So just have it in your mind. If you've got somebody who's vomiting, low conscious level, and you're not sure what's going on, perhaps do a CT head scan and look hard for a cerebellar infarct. Similarly, thalamic strokes have a variety of presentations and can just present as somnolence, confusion and amnesia. So again, if you've got a patient who you can't really understand whilst while they're presenting like that, think about imaging their thalamus and you may need to do an MRI to see it clearly. I thought we'd mention a few strokes that tend to come up in exams. Wallenberg syndrome, Weber's syndrome, just because you often get questions about these. And in thinking about these, it just makes you focus a little bit on your anatomy of sort of vascular anatomy. I'm always forgetting my vascular anatomy. I always have to go back to the picture books and look at which artery is coming off what, but I'm gradually beginning to remember. So lateral medullary syndrome, think infarct of the posterior inferior cerebellar artery. That artery supplies the lateral medulla and the inferior cerebellum. And if you get infarcts in that area, you can get a collection of symptoms. You don't always get all of the symptoms altogether. They're not always textbook, but I've begun to think about those strokes that present with a bit of dizziness, unsteadiness, dysarthria and problems swallowing, or actually more dysphagia, and then the contralateral pain and temperature sensation changes. So your typical lateral medullary will present with an ipsilateral horners, contralateral pain and temperature sensation loss below the neck and ipsilateral pain and sensation loss up in the head. They may have vertigo, nausea, nystagmus and vomiting. They may have an ipsilateral ataxia of the limbs and they may well have dysphagia and dysphonia. One of the best ways I've found for actually testing temperature sensation in a busy hospital ward that doesn't have an ice machine 
is to get a blue glove and fill it up with iced water. And believe me, you can really pick up temperature differences using that technique with a patient. Weber's syndrome is another sort of brainstem syndrome, and that's caused by an infarct of the branch of the posterior several artery, which can cause an ipsilateral oculomotor palsy and a contralateral hemiparesis. And one other one just to note is that sudden onset of deafness can occur with stroke and, and it's just something to remember and think about. And that's often because I think it's the internal auditory artery branches off the anterior inferior cerebellar artery. And so you can get unilateral deafness in stroke. So that's kind of a, a mad chase through quite a lot of stroke classifications and strokes. And we'll probably leave it there now because I think that's enough. Thank you so much.